0: The Door is Open is a think tank of the Oklahoma Conference of the United Methodist Church in collaboration with the General Commission on Religion and Race of the United Methodist Church Welcome to The Door is Open. I am uh, one of your hosts, Carlos Ramirez. And I'm Travis Sutton. And thank you for being with us today. Uh, we're going to be interviewing Mike Bauman from Union Coffee down in Dallas. Awesome. And I want to remind our audience that our uh, podcast uh, can be obtained um, or you can subscribe to it via iTunes. Uh, you can also look for us in um, SoundCloud and on Facebook. We are still working on Twitter and other platforms. But so far, this is our platforms. And uh, we're excited to have Mike with us today. And uh, Mike, would you, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Sure. i um, thrilled to be with you guys today. I'm uh, uh, Mike Bachman. I'm the pastor for Union. I'm a Methodist pastor, um, a church planner, uh, and uh, also recently finished the book uh, that was released, Flipping Church. Um, which uh, every chapter is written by a different church planner who broke some sort of rule of conventional church wisdom and attributes that rule-breaking to their success. Um, and uh, so it's a, I'm really excited to have been a part of that.
0: Well, th- thank you for accepting our invitation to The is Open. And we're looking forward yes. to hear more about uh, Flipping Church and your ministry, particularly there in the Union. Um, and, uh, I want to also tell the audience that you're coming through us through Skype. So, uh, that is how a little bit of the sound, if we lose it a little bit, we're going to be, uh, through Skype. So, uh, Travis, take it away.
2: Well, Mike, uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about Union Coffee and what you're doing with that church plant in, uh, in Dallas.
1: Sure. So we're a, um, new kind of new church start. We're a fully functional coffee shop. We're open seven days a week. Um, and we use that as a site for ministry, for outreach, for connection in the neighborhood. Um, we do have worshiping communities that are a part of our ministry at Union, uh, one that meets on Sunday night, another meets Tuesday night. And most of the folks who attend that are 20-somethings, um, and most of whom would call themselves church refugees of some <laughs> form or another. Uh, but then we have a, a full range of other events that allow us to connect in with a community um, with a less overtly religious way, and that allows us to connect with people that we wouldn't otherwise get the chance to connect with, learn from, um, and to be in contact with. So um, some of those things include stuff like uh, Friday nights, we do an event called the Naked Stage, which is a storytelling stage. Um, People tell their stories without notes, without props, without anything on the screen. Mm. Um, So it's a storytelling exposed is one of the ways we like to describe that. Uh, and we find that stories are a great way to help people connect with each other that wouldn't otherwise know one another. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do something called capes for kids, which is uh, once a month we convert our coffee shop into a cape-making factory. Mm-hmm. We crank out as many kid-sized capes as we can, and then we have a volu- team of volunteers that dress up like superheroes and deliver those capes with ki- to kids with chronic illnesses in the Dallas area. Nice. Um so there's a, and there's a long list of other events that we do, but but our goal is, um, and our mission is to identify the divine spark in our neighbor um, and cultivate that. Uh, so whether someone, you know, overtly connects with God, is interested in connecting with God or, um, or, or not, we still believe that there's something divine and incredible in all the people that we meet. So our job is not to bring God into the neighborhood mm-hmm. or Jesus into the lives of the people who walk in our doors, because our assumption is, is that God is already in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. that Jesus is already at work in our lives. Um, our goal is simply to see what God is up to and nurture and encourage that. Um, and so that's led to I think one of the most important things we've learned there, which is that when we look for God in others, um, they tend to see God in us. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's... Um, a different approach, I think, than, than a lot of other New Church Starts have.
2: Mike, what uh, what inspired you to take this um, alternative approach uh, to church planning in Dallas? Uh,
1: a couple of things. Myself and two other guys, Phil Dickey and Neil Mosley, who have also done ministry with 20-somethings and Rising Generations, Um consistently felt like we are having a hard time in existing churches doing that kind of work um, because oftentimes the needs of the people that we were trying to serve, especially those who were outside of the church or weren't you know, already pretty involved in their faith, uh, a lot of the things that we felt like was necessary to connect with that generation were things that made other folks in the church kind of uncomfortable. Um, and so we wanted to figure out how is it that we could develop a new kind of church that would experiment with a couple of key things. One was, how could we do generationally specific ministry um, so that we could really hone in on the needs of a particular group of people um, and then empower them to be leaders of that organization. Secondly, we wanted to experiment with uh, deeper ways of connecting with the neighborhood. So that, you know, I truly believe, especially now that we've been open for almost four years, if Union closed our doors tomorrow, the city of Dallas would notice,
3: uh,
1: and more than just the people who worship with us, uh, that it, it would be a hurt for the community for us to disappear because we've so embedded ourselves in the lives of the folks around us. Um, and then the third thing we're experimenting with uh, is alternative means of sustainability. Uh, and that's, that's grown in our understanding of sustainability. So at first, it was simply a financial question, mm-hmm. right? If you get a whole bunch of 20-somethings worshiping with you, Um, it's not the most lucrative uh, opportunity in the world. Uh, (laughs) 26th America don't don't have a lot of financial resources to be able to support, say, a full-time pastor and Mm -hmm. um, rent and everything else that comes with it. And so part of the coffee shop operations is to allow us to connect with people we wouldn't otherwise be able to. But some of it is to experiment with alternative means of sustainability for the church. That's a imp- particularly important question um, in the Methodist Church mm-hmm. where we're one of the most property rich organizations mm-hmm. in the United States. But it's anticipated that something to the tune of 30% of our congregations are not financially sustainable over the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a problem. Um, so we were looking at alternative means of financial sustainability in the hopes that we might learn lessons to share with the rest of the church. Um, but secondly that's led to a question of broader sustainability of the church and mm-hmm. that now we have these two worshiping congregations um, at Union one of which is growing pretty much beyond capacity uh, and some of the members are starting to like marry each other <laughs> looking to maybe have kids and we're realizing that you know a Tuesday night worship service the the series might be titled Holy and you know it's conversational so people around them might curse liberally throughout the service <laughs> might not be the best place to raise kids in the faith so uh, <laughs> or maybe it is we don't know yet Right. but certainly the time doesn't work as well because um, that's past the bedtime of most of my children at least uh, yes. and so one of the things that we're considering is what would it look like for us to take say our Tuesday night congregation as it grows older and develops and have it potentially inject its DNA into an existing church that is struggling. Um, And so if we can produce these outposts of ministry with rising generations that are consistently building up congregations of entrepreneurial young people who care about Jesus Christ and who are coming up with creative ways of being the church, um, it seems to me like it could be a really powerful thing if we were building up congregations and then sending them off to revitalize existing churches. Um, so when we look at sustainability, we're starting to look at it in um, a broader range than mm-hmm. what we had initially thought.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, uh, you know, there's a couple of different approaches that I'm, I'm aware of that you guys take in order to facilitate some of this. Uh, one is the way you title yourself and your staff. Um, it's not the traditional lead pastor, associate pastor, or anything like that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: <laughs> sure. Um yeah. So the the title that I typically use for myself and things is community curator, mm-hmm. um, and and the reason for that is that um, you know my job is about more than just tending to the spiritual well being of the people around us. That a big part of my job and the role that I see the church potentially playing in society is connecting people. Um, so I like the title curator because a curator in a museum takes different mm-hmm. works of art and try to to put them together in ways that that make sense. Mm -hmm. They aren't necessarily the ones creating the art. Um, You know, most curators can't do anything with a paintbrush. (laughs) Um, But they're good at taking these different things Mm -hmm. and combining them in ways that strengthen all of the different pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the role that I see myself having in the community. It's not my job to start lots of ministries. It's not my job to launch lots of new things. It's my job to connect the right people so that great things can happen. uh, so that's one of the examples, I think, of how we kind of <laughs> look at our roles a little differently.
2: Yeah. So um, in with union, you're, you're addressing some of the needs. You're challenging conventions of the way we thought about uh, doing ministry. I love the entrepreneurial piece. That's a piece that I've been working on for some time. Uh, what are, you know, your book, Flipping Church, I believe yours is one of the examples in the book, Flipping Church, but uh, there's many other examples of of different people challenging convention. And what are some of the some of the conventions that are out there that are that are being challenged today?
1: Um, yeah. So. Gosh, there are a lot of them uh, in the in the book. Some of the ones that stick out to me, uh, one was a chapter written by Elaine Heath, who mm-hmm. is now the dean at Duke Divinity School, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting, the, the convention that she challenged, which is the assumption that we need professional pastors to launch new churches. <laughs> um, and as a professional pastor, you know, I got about two pages in when I was editing I started to feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, and I figure that's a good sign that it needs to be in the book. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, that's one example. Another is uh, what comes from uh, a woman named Diane Harrison who is out in Memphis, Tennessee. And she started Grace Place United Methodist Church. And what sets that church apart is that um, it's a church that meets in the walls of the Mark Luttrell Correctional Facility. Um, so all of the members of her church are convicted felons.
3: Hmm.
1: Um, and uh, it's, she's really keen to point out that this is not a chaplaincy. You see, we typically set up chaplaincies in prisons and treat the inmates as objects of ministry, mm-hmm. and as long as the chaplain is there, the ministry is there, but as soon as the chaplain leaves, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she wanted to establish Grace Place United Methodist Church um, as a way of providing an ongoing presence within the walls of the prison, um, not just when the professional staff person is there. Um, You know there are also challenges of the ways that we look at numbers and where we value resources. Matt Miowski leads the gathering in St. Louis, uh, and he talks about when he launched uh, uh, the gathering that the last time a United Methodist Church had been planted in the city, uh, in the city limits of St. Louis, was in the 19th century. Wow. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> wow. And the reason being that, you know, we assume, well, there's a church in that neighborhood. It must be meeting the needs of the people there. And one of the things that he points out is the significant urban neglect that we have within our church planning strategies. We're always looking at that suburban edge where new people are moving into right. and we forget the cities. Um, and that in actuality, even though we might have, you know, a hundred churches within a city limit, mm-hmm. that the population density is so high mm-hmm. that we're actually underserving the population yes. represented. Yes, yes. Uh, So he challenged those numbers. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, You know, in Chicago, Urban Village Church, Trey Mm -hmm. Hall and Christian Kuhn launched uh, that congregation Mm -hmm. there. And it was two planners that launched the church, which is also another kind of playoff of the numbers that we assume. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, very well-intentioned, but people who clearly hadn't launched a church said something along the lines Mm of, well, if there are two of you, how are both of you actually going to keep busy full-time launching a new church?
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, Which any church planner laughs because <laughs> there's never a shortage of things to do uh, and and they really look to a biblical model of two people launching a ministry is far better than one mm-hmm. it allowed them to go to multi-site a lot faster mm-hmm. it allowed them to diversify their talents and skill sets um, and hone in on the things they're good at without having to do the things that they're not um and uh, so they challenge a lot of the typical notions of the best way to launch a church and now you know they're one of the greatest success stories uh, for urban plant, uh, especially among young people. Mm. Um, I mean, I could go on and on, but those are some of the examples of ways that um, I see a lot of the rules of church planning being broken.
0: Now, Mike, I have a question. Uh, I want. It is kind of at the beginning of our conversation. You said that you had a lot of church refugees. So I want yeah. to circle back to that one to ask that question. I have another question in a minute for you. But the first one is that um, what, what do you mean or how would you describe a church def- refugee? I may um, I may have a notion, notion as to what that is, but uh, what I'm going with this is that I think that many churches will say, you know, traditional churches will say, well, you know, we are so uh, nice, we are friendly, and we don't know why people don't come to our church, right? And, uh, and I think that I'm assuming that on your answer, a lot of that notion is going to be also flipping, flipping it and, and uh, uh, questioning it as well.
1: Yeah. Um, so the people that I that we kind of describe as church refugees. To understand that concept, I'm going to borrow a term that um, I think it was Christian Kuhn at Urban Village Church used that. Really sums that up because they have a lot of folks who are similar to us. They they refer to it as the burned and the board. Mm. <laughs> right? So um, a lot of the people who worship with us are ones who weren't necessarily looking for a church, right. but kind of stumbled into a worship gathering that was taking place in the middle of a coffee shop and heard something that surprised them, mm. um, but also somehow spoke to them. Uh, so when I think about the burned and the board, you know, the a, a lot of the burned are honestly people who are a part of. Um, Uh, Gay, lesbian, bisexual, Mm transgendered, or questioning community. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so about a quarter of our worshiping population to maybe a third um, Mm -hmm. identify somewhere on that spectrum. Uh, And so there are people who have been burned by a more uh, conservative ideology that wasn't inclusive um, of certainly not affirming of their sexuality Mm -hmm. um or sometimes they just kind of tolerated their sexuality Mm -hmm. um so that's certainly a part of it um we also find others who have been burned in other ways by the church feeling like they didn't have a place or because they believed something that was different from you know the dominant group that like Mm -hmm. it was okay to question their faith Mm -hmm. as long as they came to the right answers Uh, (laughs) right And uh, they found out that they came to different answers and that there wasn't really a space for them anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I think about some of the folks who are the board, it's, you know, there's a common phenomenon that I keep hearing um, from these 20-somethings. And Mm -hmm. it's like they grew up in church, they went to youth group, Mm -hmm. uh, they believed these things, their faith was very meaningful to them, and then they went away to college and they developed, say, a a more critical pedagogy or... or Uh, critical thinking skills which are important in that process Mm -hmm. and they started applying it to their faith because they're applying it to everything else as they should Mm -hmm. Um, and it led to new questions and and, and a blossoming of their faith really um, as they explored things from a different perspective and um, and then they went back to their home congregations or churches that were similar to their home congregations and Mm. they encountered a church that was still asking the same questions (laughs) and coming to the same answers that they had had in high school right and so they kind of felt like they had grown to this other place, but they mm-hmm. couldn't find anywhere that had grown up with them. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to still be asking the same old questions and coming to the same old answers. Right. Uh, and so after a long time of boredom, they just kind of wandered away mm-hmm. and it wasn't that the people were mean. It wasn't that anybody right. hurt them. It was just that they no longer found a reason to attend. Mm-hmm. Um, and, a union. We are very intentional about asking hard questions and mm. pushing things to that next level, and creating space for people to wrestle mm-hmm. um, with faith with one another. And and I think that's part of the appeal mm-hmm. um, for some of those folks. Um, yeah. Does that help? Kind of. Yes. Yes. Very much.
0: Very much indeed. Yes. I like. I like that. Uh, the burned and the board. Uh, that's a good yeah. one. And I'm going to borrow it from from it too. Um, <laughs> our history as United Methodist. That we follow the people in the sense of uh, I, I can see the 50s and 60s, uh, the churches that I am seeing now. What it, what is now the inner city uh, used to be the booming suburb of at a time, right in the 50s and 60s. Sure. And then you know they keep keeps growing. the the, the city keeps growing and the people move away. And and I I, I agree with you that we are the inner city is way underserved. Right, way underserved. Yeah. I want to ask you this question. The, the The way that I see it is that suburban uh, life, while vital as it is, again from numbers and statistics and everything, one will per- per- perpetuate um, the our whiteness in 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 our, in our um, denomination. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, is going to be uh, it may thrive, but it is very. Um, contained to it because there's affluence uh, you, you know statistically uh, white people make more more money than others sure um, but I think that the demographic change and everything is coming where uh, as you're saying uh, not only LGBTQ uh, but also uh, minorities of any uh, color uh, is going to be majority minority so to speak So, yeah. h- how do you see how do you see that future from your vantage point and from union because you are right in the thick of things so h- how do you see sure. that
1: uh, coming So, to um, i mean union right now one of the things that i love about our community is that at least as far as like our customer base goes mm-hmm. we see um a direct correlation between the diversity breakdown of our neighborhood, according Mm. to ethnicity. Yeah. Uh, And we see that reflected in our customer base. Mm. Um, So that's kind of a first step of saying like, okay, great. We're like actually connecting with the people who are immediately around us. Mm -hmm. Um, And we sit in one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the city of Dallas. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, Dallas is a city that is heavily segregated by race um and if you look at the ethnographic map for the city of dallas it almost looks like it was designed that way Mm. because it was (laughs) Uh, sad history of our of our city Um, but we're in one of the rare um uh you know kind of mixed neighborhoods Mm -hmm. uh and so i'm really proud that we have that on our customer base it isn't quite as well reflected in our worshiping congregation Mm -hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that we, we have to own. About mm-hmm. a quarter of our worshiping congregation is non-white. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while that's a step, and that's better than probably most predominantly white
0: congregations, right, right.
1: Um, it's still not where it needs to be. And and I don't consider that as reason to you know give ourselves a pass. Uh, <laughs> and I think that, it, that there are a couple of key things that have led to that and what I'm learning about. Um, one is that... You know, I think that it's extremely important that your leadership team reflect the people that mm-hmm. you want to be a part mm-hmm. of your congregation.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so for us, I mean, my leadership team is integrally important. I'm, I'm not in my 20s. I've, I'm at least three, if not four distinct life stages away from most of the people that I'm in ministry <laughs> with. Um, you know, like I've got, a, I've got two kids in high school
3: mm-hmm.
1: and most of the people that I'm in ministry with are not married, do mm-hmm. not have kids are just starting their career or in college. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that I'm able to successfully, I think, believe, be in ministry with them mm-hmm. is that I have a leadership team that's entirely made up of that demographic mm-hmm. we seek to, be, mm-hmm. seek to be in ministry with. Right. Um, they design uh, not just, you know, kind of high-level decisions, but they design our worship services, mm-hmm. they craft the sermons with me. Yes. Um, they're integrally involved in everything that we do. Right. Uh, and our leadership team, uh, while it is young, you know, only about a quarter of our leadership team reflects non-white ethnic diversity. And so we've, we've reaped what we've sown, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, so I think that's one of the things that, that I've learned in my own experience is if I tr- want, truly want a multi-ethnic congregation, then I need to be ultra intentional about creating a multi-ethnic congregation.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Doug Cunningham is a pastor in the Bronx up in New York City,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, he has done this extraordinarily well. He also contributed a chapter to mm-hmm. Flipping Church, um, and his, uh, his congregation is, um, you know, well, to back up on Doug, I'm not sure exactly how old he is, but I would guess that he's probably less than a decade away from retirement. Um, so he's an older white guy. Um, mm-hmm. He's got all the privilege um, heterosexual, well-educated. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and he, he claims all of that. And, owns it. <laughs> uh, and, uh, if you look at a picture of his congregation though, you know, it's by and large, I would say about 90% of the people are under the age of 40, Wow. probably 75% are under the age of 30. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say less than a quarter of the population is white. Wow. Um, and he's been able to do that because he was so intentional mm-hmm. about empowering and putting in leadership mm-hmm. a multi-ethnic, diverse representation of his neighborhood in the Bronx mm-hmm. that he's in ministry with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things, too, that Owen Ross stresses, he's the pastor of Christ, founder United yes. Methodist Church, mm-hmm. um, is that you don't have to look like the people you serve. Yes but you have to love them and you have Mm -hmm. to be culturally competent. Yes. Um, And so I think that that's one of the most important skills that we're not teaching in seminary in large part because I don't think we know how to. Right. (laughs) Uh, And that is how to be culturally competent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I feel like Princeton honestly did a really good job for me in that regard Mm -hmm. Um, uh, through the work of people like Kenda Dean. Um, And there it was teaching kind of cultural competency across Mm -hmm. Mm generations. but the skills can, can overlap.
0: Yes. And, yes.
1: And uh, and I think we need to be better at that across the board, um, because it's not, you know, and it's hard because it's not an academic discipline to right.
0: teach and, right. and,
1: and the skills necessary to mm-hmm. be able to understand that. But yes. Uh, but dang, it's important.
0: Do you have a a a resource or a book that you go to that you would say, you know, you can start with this. Not necessarily on, on um, cultural competency or cultural competency regarding generations. Do you have a book that you say, man, this is, you should read this or uh, this is helping me, has helped me, or, you know, we discussed in groups or something?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of a Dean disciple, and uh, uh-huh. yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I think a lot of her stuff mm-hmm. um, is, is integral to that kind of work, especially almost Christian. Um, and, and practicing passion are, huh. I think the two of her books that have really just kind of set me on fire the most and understanding. Um, but I think a lot of it too, is to look beyond, um, religious resources in that regard. Um, you know, Gallup and, and mm. other independent research organizations do an incredible job, yes. um, understanding the things that drive generations. Mm. And we don't typically look to those sources yes. as often, Right. um, you know, I think one of the things that's helped me be more culturally competent is is this root theology that I keep coming back mm. to, that's that's informed union that I alluded to at the beginning. Mm. Um, this notion that, like, we didn't set up union to bring God into the neighborhood. Right. Um, and that's all rooted in that understanding of the omnipresence of God. Yes. Um, and... And with that kind of understanding, if I assume that God is at work in these other places, Mm -hmm. if I assume that God is at work in the sorority rush chair that walks in our doors, like I've got some things to learn from her Mm -hmm. about how it is that we can be welcoming to rising generations. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I look at the guys who run the CrossFit gym a block north of me, and see the success that they're having, mm-hmm. inspiring a high level commitment from the yes. 20 somethings that make up the bulk of their business. Right. Some things who don't have money, but still pay like <laughs> 200, $300 a month to be a part of wow. CrossFit. Yes. Like they know how to inspire a high level mm-hmm. commitment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can learn from them yes. uh, what it is that they're tapping into. And so cultural competency involves not just reading, you know, books written by church people. Right. Um, But it involves actually getting to know the people who are working with a generation, uh, um, who understand them, and then learning from them as well.
0: Right. Uh, Awesome.
2: Well, uh, let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back and continue to discuss the lessons learned from Flipping Church and Union Conference. with Mike Bachman, and we are learning about uh, the Lessons Learned from Flipping Church, which is a book uh, about challenging conventions of the way we've done church in the past. Mm-hmm. And in uh, Union Coffee, uh, Mike is the pastor of Union Coffee and is uh, is challenging his own conventions. Uh, Mike, I, one of the things you alluded to earlier was the uh, the idea that you're Three or four life stages removed from the people that you're ministering to. Uh, you also talked about uh, Doug up in uh, the Bronx, who is uh, several generation or maybe a couple of generations removed from the people that he's ministering to, yeah. um, and and the fact that he's also white male heterosexual and claims all of that privilege, and yet um, in both cases able to reach across those boundaries and connect through cultural competency, engaging in the lessons that you can learn from the people around you. One of the things that I think is uh, interesting is the approach that you take to doing, uh, even doing your sermons and involving them in in that process. Uh, Could you tell us a little more, a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, um... I mean, learning how to preach in this context has been one of the the best learning opportunities for me, um, and I think now I'm kind of walking away from it, challenging a lot of the assumptions that we have about it, what it means to preach and what it means to proclaim the word. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I'll start by saying kind of how we do it and then, and then hopefully that'll lead to an understanding of some of the things that I'm learning in that process. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I have a team of people that meets with me every week to plan out the worship gatherings, including the the sermons themselves. Uh, and so most of the worship and sermon planning is done by a team of people and not by me alone. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, you know, that ends up being all encompassing. Uh, they, you know, I'll offer some of my initial ideas, and then they give lots of feedback, they talk about possible illustrations, they come up with examples of things, they help me identify what's going to stick and matter to the people who are in the room. And then we even craft the flow of how we see the conversation going. And it's important to note that we view it as a conversation. Uh, that The sermon is not a time for me to stand up and tell people what to think, what to believe, or, or even necessarily what the gospel says, that instead it's a time for us to do that work together. Um, so all of the sermons, whether it's Sunday night or Tuesday night, are very conversational. Um, they're built around that. And like there are times that I'll finish my sermon prep and, and I'll have just written at the bottom of my notepad, so what the hell does this mean for us?
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And I don't know the answer to it. Um, but I've learned that preaching isn't fundamentally my responsibility, mm-hmm. that, that preaching can belong to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I turn the responsibility of preaching over to the people, that um, that's when the Holy Spirit really starts to show up and help direct things. So there might be these questions that I can't answer or figure out in my sermon prep, but I'll turn it to the room and actually expect them to answer and then they do mm. like, they find that piece that I can't figure out on my own. Mm. Or there are also times that I'll start talking and someone will stick their hand up in the air and say, Mike, I think what you're saying is bullshit. And here's why. Um, <laughs> and we enter into conversation and, and I throw out everything that I had planned and all the notes that we had. And we chase this other direction because it seems like that's where the room needs to go. And sometimes, and this drives me a little crazy. Like sometimes it's even the people on the planning team, who know the way we've kind of structured and dreamed the conversation would go <laughs> the 2 minutes in throw up their head and say well i hear the story but then like i can't escape this question here about this bible story and it really bugs me so like <laughs> like why didn't you bring that up last week when we were talking about this yes <laughs> Um, and suddenly we're taking a hard turn to the left, and, <laughs> and I don't know where we're going. But somehow the Holy Spirit steps in, mm-hmm. and and something good comes out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting, you know. I've got um, uh, on a Sunday night and Tuesday night, it'll be the same topic, it'll be the same scripture, it'll be maybe the same video to help set up the conversation. And you know, the conversation we had this past Sunday was radically different from the conversation we had last night. Um, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's okay. Yeah. Um, and so what it's led for me is, is questioning, you know, does, should the sermon really just belong to the pastor?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, are we somehow cheating our people in that <laughs> regard? Are we limiting the work of the Holy spirit in that regard? And, and I will say though, and this is something that, that, <laughs> uh, my Bishop said to, to one of my interns, Um, Our pulpit, we don't actually have a pulpit, but our pulpit is probably the hardest place to preach Mm. in the North Texas Annual Conference of the Methodist Church, (laughs) Um, because all bets are off, right? Um, because you don't know where things are going to go, and uh, so it's really hard but it's also really beautiful
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah i i hear in that this uh one the need to relinquish control uh, yeah. just being able to let go of that um the other thing that i'm hearing in that is this uh, permission not to have the answers yeah uh, to actually be willing to say you know what i don't know i don't know where this is going i don't know what this means it's saying something but i haven't figured it out yet so help me with that
0: well yeah it, it, we, Mike and Travis, but you say that um, you know traditional uh, learning and traditional training for us ministers is uh, that we, and it, I think it is still very much into the um, um, uh, writing, so to speak, uh, wor- world. You know, from setting you know, up from Luther with you know the, um, the the printing press and everything up to probably 1950 that it is all about the lecture and and there is this person who knows it all kind of thing and went to school to learn. But I think that um, as one of uh, kind of, one of people that have influenced me a lot is uh, Dr. Brandon Scott. And he would say, we are back to an oral tradition Yeah, Uh, that uh, we now tell stories back again, that it is not the uh, person who knows it all as a lecture, but it is more, as you say, in a conversation. It is more a storytelling and that story can go anywhere uh, because it is we are making it as we go type thing. And and it sounds to me like that, that you are in that cusp or you are right there. In the cutting edge of what actually culture is now, that it is all about stories and storytelling and, um, and not anymore the, the, the one who comes into the pulpit and, you know, this majestic halo of knowledge and, you know, when all the Greeks figured out and or the Hebrew and then telling what to believe.
2: So that raises a question that I think that we're trying to answer today in the church is what's the role of the resident theologian?
1: yeah i mean i think i think it is all that is important right and and i think really incredible preaching um calls for that and needs Mm -hmm. that knowledge it needs that background behind it Mm -hmm. i think there's a huge value in that and you know i kind of there's that classic quote and i'm not even sure who uh, maybe it's picasso or someone like that um said like you need to know mm-hmm. you need to know the rules like an expert so you can break them like an artist yes um right i think I think you need to know how to preach really well, yes yeah, <laughs> yes, I think you need to know how to exegete really well, um and that when you know it that well, then you have the opportunity to be able to riff with a room full of people mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's most important that I don't know why. Seminary has been on my brain recently and how we prepare pastors. Um, You know, I think that we do need preaching classes and we need more of it. I think Mm -hmm. it's absurd that someone can graduate a Master's of Divinity and have only one semester of preaching under their belt. Um, It's foolish. But I also think it's absurd that someone can graduate with a master's of divinity and have zero classes in acting under their belt.
3: Yeah.
1: And, and here's the thing, like, I spend a lot of time with theater people, our Sunday night worshiping congregation, like half of them are part of the Dallas arts um, and theater community. Mm-hmm. And they study the Bible better than any, than most academics I know. <laughs> because they know how to actually unpack a story mm. and ask questions about motivation. Yeah. Um, And the other thing that the actors are really good at, especially ones that are trained in like this Meisner school of thought, which is a stream within acting is Hmm. um, or improv theater also is the ability to yes. And
3: Mm
1: -hmm. the ability to receive what the congregation is giving you to receive what is what that question is. that's coming from that person and and then to build upon that Mm -hmm. instead of pushing the choice that you have made Um, and I think that gift of the ability to yes and something, um, is, is so integral to interactive preaching. Um, and here's the other thing to that. Like when I'm preaching in front of a room of 800 people or speaking at an event, that's got a thousand people in the room, which is not like I do that every week, like every now (laughs) and then I've had the chance to do that. And I know that there can't be that conversation Mm -hmm. back and forth. Mm -hmm. But if I'm any good, I know there's still a conversation back and forth. Mm. I am still responding to the way that they're responding to the things mm-hmm. that I say.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I need to be attuned to what the audience, what the congregation has yes. given me in that moment. Yes. Um, and build off of that as I mm-hmm. preach mm-hmm. and share the word with them. Yeah. Um, you know, if I, could, if I could make a couple changes to the seminary curriculum, I would want every pastor um, to take theater classes yeah. And to be in a production of a show mm-hmm. um, just to learn how to do that
2: so if you're in a town with an improv
0: troupe you should join it
2: <laughs>
1: yes <laughs> yeah. no question
2: oh so i want to switch gears unless you got another question
0: no i, I just uh, segue before you, your question there's not a question even i just think it's a comment uh, your your creative process sounds a lot like what the Daily Show does, or Colbert does in their show. That that's exactly what they sit down with the writers and outline and everything. So I just think that it's pretty cool, it's pretty damn creative.
1: Hey, any time you want to liken me to Stephen Colbert, I'll take it. But,
0: uh. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, sounds like that though.
1: Yeah.
2: So one, of the, I want to switch gears. Uh, going back four years when you started, uh, when you started Union. Uh, did you have a seed community? Uh, did you start with just you and, and one or two other leaders? How did y'all start out?
1: Yeah, sort of. Um, we had, I mean, it was kind of a combination. There were certainly other leaders who were involved in coming up with union. We had a launch team that helped get us started. Um, and then we had a couple people that uh, were I wouldn't say like gifted to us, but who are a part of a larger United Methodist church nearby um, that were all, I think, anxious to be in a greater role of leadership. And there wasn't really a space for them to lead in quite the same way Mm -hmm. at the large Methodist church they were a part of. And so they ended up being connected with us and taking on a leadership role and helping us get started. And that was of an enormous help to us. And then there's a lot of recruiting of just the people who were at Union on a random Wednesday night. You know, that we didn't launch a worshiping congregation until we had been open for a solid seven months. Um, So that we had the opportunity to build a team of people who represented the neighborhood that could help craft what that worship gathering would become.
2: So you let the worship and the worshiping community uh, that actually evolve out of the ministry that you're doing in the community?
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, again, that team had to reflect the people we wanted to be in ministry with. Right. And so we said, like, if we want people who aren't sure if they believe in God in our worshiping congregation, they need to be on our planning team. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, one of the interesting tasks we had was to recruit atheists to help start a new church. Nice. Uh, (laughs) uh, But somehow it it came together by the grace of God. Um, And, uh, yeah, and then honestly just praying for the – Particular kinds of people to show up, and I was never let down. Um, I would pray for folks to show up, and they would, and it was kind of mm-hmm. freaky and weird. Um,
2: <laughs> so the uh, so the coffee shop. It sounds like the coffee shop is not only integral to your financial sustainability, but your actual sustainability as a worshiping congregation or worshiping community. The the people that are that you're able to minister to are coming through the connections the natural connections from yeah. the coffee shop
1: yeah absolutely
2: and how meaningful is that as opposed to you know the previous models that we have uh of outreach and and going out and and doing uh even certain evangelism outreach and those types of things in the community which are important um how much more meaningful or is it more meaningful that uh that you have a a space that you can draw people in and make those natural connections
1: oh it's interesting because i think we we really um critique uh churches that that develop an attractional model
3: mm-hmm.
1: right a lot of especially big steeple churches mm-hmm. will say like no we're just gonna do really amazing things and that will pull people in from the community and that's how we'll connect with them and they use that as an excuse from being out in the community mm-hmm. um, but i think the reality is is that there might be something to an attractional model if you actually do something that people want
3: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and most churches are terrible at that <laughs> um, quite honestly and um or they attract people in for something that has little to nothing to do with the worshiping congregation mm. and there's no clear connection between that thing and the worshiping congregation and so the church leadership says like well we don't understand we have a preschool here People drop their kids off here. Why don't they come on Sunday morning? (laughs) But the pastor spends zero time with the kids preschool. Mm -hmm. The staff doesn't know any of the parents. The preschool staff doesn't know anybody on the church end of things. And there's no obvious connection. So why the hell would they? Just because it's the same building? That doesn't make any sense. Right, right. Right? And so on our end, part of what we do is an attractional model. But yeah. we actually put together stuff that people want, like you know, caffeine. I mean, we're <laughs> level. Um, but we, but it's more than the caffeine. You know, we create a space that's a positive working environment. We have mm-hmm. conference rooms that people can reserve um, to host meetings that are easily accessible and um, that don't have some sort of overt churchy thing that might make people who yeah. don't like the church uncomfortable. Um, yeah. You know, we, we actually provide things that the neighborhood needs because we listened to the neighborhood mm-hmm. and started doing the things the neighborhood walked there by. Um, so I think we do. Now, beyond that, we are very involved beyond our own walls. Um, a couple of years ago, I served on the Mayor's Star Council for the city of Dallas, and have continued a, a pretty big role in civic engagement beyond the walls of our church. Uh, you know, our Caves for Kids endeavors, we, we make caves at Union, but we deliver them to a whole bunch of different hospitals and in partnerships with organizations like Make Wish Foundation, um, and, and things of that nature. You know, the number of partnerships we have with other organizations is is kind of absurd when we come up with a full mm-hmm. list. Um, so we are both out beyond our walls, but we are also doing things that are very attractional. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think our churches need to be more aware of what actually attracts people. Right. And then needs to not use that as an excuse to not be out in the community as well
2: right and and now you've uh, received a critique at times that you guys are a boutique ministry Uh, you want (laughs) to expound on that a little bit
1: yeah i say great (laughs) (laughs) i have a problem with tapping into a particular you know i think there are two implications of that kind of boutique church one is a notion of it being very particularized and specific and honestly, I'm okay with that.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I, I, don't, I don't think we're going to be all things to all people. Um, there are 12 tribes of Israel for a reason, um, each having its own expression. Um, you know, each of the disciples was different and took on different ministries. Antioch can be valid even if the ministries in Antioch aren't the same ones they use in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think there can be a diversity of ministries for a diversity of people. Um, there are a lot of folks who feel like we're not who come looking for a different kind of church experience and we're just not going to be that for them, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there are plenty of other places to meet their needs. So I'm willing to embrace that notion. Um, now, the other, the other element with boutique church is, that, is this kind of notion that it'll always be small. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some truth to that, too. I'm much more interested in building up a whole bunch of small congregations that are networked and connected mm-hmm. than building one gigantic congregation. Um, because if we can create a bunch of different smaller congregations, we can affect change in different neighborhoods. Um, We can build bridges across people that wouldn't otherwise connect in a way that we just can't in one large church. Um, So I'm okay with being boutique. It allows us to be small. It allows us to hit particular groups. And the other part of that boutique church critique is that the reality is, is that most churches already are boutique churches.
3: <laughs> um,
1: that when I look at these kind of big steeple suburban churches that sometimes mm-hmm. level that critique mm-hmm. on a place like Union, I look at them and I say, "But you're a boutique church too. You only serve a very particular demographic." Mm-hmm. And they say, "No, no, no. Like we welcome everybody, and everyone can come and be a part of this." And they don't recognize <laughs> that their that their boutique is, you know, conservative leaning. Can. Um, yep uh, baby boomers mm-hmm. who consider church to be an important part of their daily life, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a boutique mm-hmm. and they don't realize that the things that they do are very particular to that culture right. and to that experience.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, and they don't see how what they're doing is off putting or not welcoming to the, everybody that they think they're welcoming.
2: Yeah. I think that's one of the hallmarks of, uh, Postmodernism is this idea that um, that there are niche, uh, there Mm -hmm. is no universal now, uh, Mm -hmm. like we assumed there was before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reality is there never was a universal. We just always assumed that there was, Uh, and that idea, that connection, that uh, that niche ministry can relate across a broader spectrum of people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Well we're gonna take another break and then we'll come back and kinda and wrap this up. Sounds great. All right, welcome back to The Door is Open. We're here with Mike Bachman, and we are discussing Union Coffee in Dallas and Flipping Church and challenging the ideas that uh, there are certain conventions of the ways we've done church that uh, are being challenged and uh, that that this is scary territory for some, but at the same time, this is kind of the direction that society is moving in a lot of respects.
0: Hey, Mike, I have a couple of questions for you. Num- question yeah. number one. It is, uh, you're doing something so unique and new and uh, creative. And I want, I want to hear as to why Union, something so like, you know, very traditional or, you know, I can think of Union Theological Seminary and Union, you know, UMC or something like that. So wh- why you chose the or why came up to the name Union?
1: Yeah, so one of those um, guys who came up with the initial idea, Neil Mosley, um, was the one who came up with a name for Union, and there are a couple of reasons for it. One is. Um, that we're very close by to Southern Methodist University's campus.
3: Okay.
1: Um, and so we knew that you know, students would naturally be a part of our ministry and our customer base. Mm-hmm. So we like the idea of a student union, um, oh, especially being close by to a campus that doesn't have an actual student union. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right, right. So, um, so some of it was that. Uh, but then we also liked the, um, the notion of, you know, it's a part of the word communion, Or it's a feeds into that word. uh Uh, But then uh, the last thing about it is that a a big part of our mission we see is being a connection point between parts of Dallas that wouldn't otherwise connect with each other Mm. um, or sub communities that that we see. Dallas is very siloed Mm -hmm. um, and Union is a place and kind of cross that. And if you look at our logo, it's these three distinct boxes with Union like haphazardly scrawled across them. (laughs) um and and so that's that's a big part of our identity yes
0: and then question number two it is um so you're doing all the, again all these creative things and uh you know you're saying um I'm more interested in building small little congregations or uh, communities of faith um, and that they're all networking and interconnected than these huge massive uh traditional if you will um Mega church,
3: yeah
0: how do you then because I am uh, I'm, I'm in, in the boat with you in, in many ways or we are in the boat with you how do you uh, and I have I have asked this question to many people that we have had here in the doors open uh, how do you manage uh, to be with an institution on one you know on, on one feet on one foot I'm sorry you know you know as you're saying you know we traditionally do this and we traditionally do that and then i'm assuming that they they meaning your conference and in our superiors you know have you know so how many people are now and uh, how much money and all the kind of things which i understand completely because i am i'm part of the system so i, I understand sure. on that side on, so on, kind of on the one hand we have that institutional responsibility if you will but on the other we have these creative part where you know we want to just get loose so how do you if there's any way to reconcile or or balance that how 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 do you do it how do you go from completely creative out of the box if i don't you know cliche uh, phrase or just be creative let the, the holy spirit take you where it needs to be taken as kind of where your sermons go but on the other hand you have you know the eyes looking at you and saying okay so yeah
1: Um, So, I mean, I I think a lot of those things that the denominational system wants matters, right? It is important to have numbers of some sort. Mm -hmm. Um, But rather than having one big worship gathering, you know, on Mm -hmm. uh, last night we had about 60 people who worshiped with us. Mm -hmm. And on uh, Sunday night we had about 40 something people Mm -hmm. who worshiped with us. So, you know, we still had over a hundred, mm-hmm. uh, 20-somethings, most of whom are church refugees, mm. uh, with little or no duplication, mm-hmm. worship with us this past week. Wow. Um, and for a new church start, there aren't many churches in our area that have that many young people right. engaged in worship in any given yes. week. Um, so, you know, I can still talk talk about numbers. Mm-hmm. We just construct those numbers in different ways. Yeah. Um, and then I also turn to ways that we have influence on the broader system. Mm. You know, we had 57,000 people walk through our doors last year at Union. Um, and that's 57,000 points of contact that we had Mm -hmm. with people in the city of Dallas, Mm -hmm. many of whom have zero to no relationship with the church. Right. Um, that's, that's huge. Mm -hmm. Um, we, you know, can point to the number of people who are a part of our Naked Stage events or mm-hmm. help with Cakes for Kids or, yes. um, you know, this long list of things that, that don't necessarily have religious affiliation. And and mm-hmm. and we believe that those numbers matter and are powerful, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things also that I point to with the broader system is to say, look, um And, you know, I'm thoroughly Methodist, so I just keep using (laughs) Methodist examples. But, uh, you know, the Methodist Church is one of the few organizations of its size in America that does all of its financial planning on what basically amounts to a four-year cycle. Right, right. And most parts of the church only do it on a one-year cycle. Mm -hmm. Right? Like Coca-Cola does not do that.
0: Right, (laughs) right, right, right. Right,
1: right there's a long game that is planned out by AT&T when they're figuring out their financial systems and mm-hmm. they have actuaries and all these fancy pants people figuring this stuff out. <laughs> um, Golden Sachs does not plan their financial system on a four year cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that I challenge uh, denominational leaders on is I say, let's look at things just from a financial perspective. Mm-hmm. And I know we get skittish about that in the church, right. but let's just look at these people as their financial impact on the church. Um, Who is of greater value to the institution of the church, a 65-year-old who is giving $15,000 a year, Hmm. or a 22-year-old grad student who's giving $600 a year? Right, and All right. and because we think in the short term, right. value that 65-year-old. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the reality is, is that almost every major corporation in America mm-hmm. loses money on recruiting young people
3: mm-hmm.
1: to build brand identity with people, a yes. brand uh, identity and an alignment mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. people who will not provide a financial return for them for decades.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, but the reality yeah. is, is that grad student. If I can get him to give $50 a month. When his income is next to nothing, Mm -hmm. then I've instilled in him a practice of generosity that when he becomes a lawyer, when he becomes a historian, when he Mm -hmm. becomes a whatever, um, and suddenly has significant income, Mm -hmm. that he's going to be able to contribute at a much higher level. That we should, in the church, be losing money on ministries that are effectively connecting with Mm -hmm. rising generations, if we care about the financial sustainability of the church. Mm Um, but we don't invest our resources that way.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things in taking from the business perspective, uh, another thing that many businesses do, like Coca-Cola and a lot, a lot of these larger corporations, is they have a continuous R&D department. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, as, the, as one product is moving into uh, the peak of its life cycle, they're working on the next product. that they're going to be launching and what we tend to do as a church is we wait until uh you know as individual churches or as a denomination we wait until we're on the back end of that life cycle and then we try to back it back up and we don't even because we have not made any plan um for what the next thing is going to be i've uh, worked with a lot of churches that have uh Done, gone through a visioning process, and they'll spend a year going through a five-year visioning process that they may or may not actually implement, mm-hmm. and then they yeah. won't do it again for twenty years. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. Yeah, and you know Phil Schrader is a church developer in um, Georgia, uh, so he supports new church starts and helps transform congregations that that are that aren't performing as well as they should. One of the things that he he said to me once that I thought was really insightful. is He said, "Look." Uh, The folks over at Mac, Mm -hmm. um, like Mac Books and Mac Enterprise and, you know, Mm -hmm. computers, um, they're constantly figuring out ways to cannibalize their own customers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because if they are, they are consistently offering a better product to their Mm -hmm. customers. Yeah. Right. Right. And in the church, instead, we fret and worry about competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, you can't bring a new church start into this neighborhood. Because – what if it takes people away from this thing or, or things like that? And while we shouldn't like target all the Methodists to like pull the ones from that church to our church, the reality is, is that, that that should never enter into our mindset of how we research and develop. Because mm-hmm. um, the one small research and development arm we have in the church or new church starts.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we need to ditch a notion of competition, not only because there are far more people out there mm-hmm. than than any competitive notion would would ascribe to yes right but secondly that like yeah we need to keep developing we need to keep pushing we need to keep getting better
2: right right yeah i've uh i've often used the the adage when talking about reaching out to to new people um and dealing with churches that uh you know out of a community maybe 10 percent of them are actually involved in church so and everybody's doing the same thing to reach the same people. So I'm interested right. in right. looking for what's the one thing they're not doing so right. that I can reach the people they're not reaching. Yep.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, There's a similar approach with the campus ministry efforts we have at SMU. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are 29 Christian campus ministries on SMU wow. right now. Um, and out of that 29, um, we are the only Christian campus ministry that has made a statement that is open and affirming to... LGBTQ students on campus. Hmm. Right. Um, You know, everyone else is going after the same group of students. Right. (laughs) Yep. So I want to
2: change gears again, unless you had a question. No, 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 no. Uh, I want to hear a little bit about your thoughts on the line between secular and sacred. Uh, I know (laughs) that you have kind of a unique approach to that as well.
1: Uh, Yeah, so I don't think there is a line there. Um, I think that it's a false dichotomy, that if we believe in the omnipresence of God, there is not that which is sacred and that which is secular. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if we believe in the omnipresence of God, there is no person that is not touched, there is no organization that does not have God as a part of it, there is no, um, yeah, that, that, that we intentionally try to break that down, and we live that out in our ministry, not only in the way that we do pastoral care with people. Um, and the way that I engage in conversation with people, um, but also even down to like, you know, the way that we craft our worship gatherings. Mm-hmm. Um, on Tuesday nights, our band, the first several songs that, that they play are songs um, from, from popular culture. The, the radio is our hymnal, um, nice. and we use songs that speak somehow to the message that we're talking about that day. Um, we close the worship gathering with a traditional hymn. Because the songs of the homeland matter to a refugee,
3: Mm -hmm.
1: but we don't start there. Um, We start looking for God in the broader world. Um, and, And then that carries out in our Sunday Night Worship Gathering as well, where people from the arts community perform pieces that aren't overtly religious, but somehow speak to the message of the day. And my job is to sit there and record the words that they're saying or reflect the emotions that they're lifting up and then incorporate that into the communion liturgy later on. Right. so that we lift up what they offer as holy um, mm-hmm. and, and pull out that divine spark that's there.
2: Yeah, well, and, and it's a wonderful way to get people to think theologically about their lives. And we have a real tendency yeah. to compartmentalize. And this is the spiritual side, and that's the secular mm-hmm. side. And uh, and we don't cross over uh, what we do on Sunday morning or what we do, on in your case, on Tuesday night. It mm-hmm. uh, yeah. doesn't carry over into what you're doing at work or what you're doing at school or what you're doing in other areas of your life.
1: Yeah. There's no, I think there's another important reason why for evangelistic purposes, this is a important perspective, right? Especially with rising generations, mm-hmm. because if we believe our relationship with God is the most important thing in our life. And, and, and I believe that, mm-hmm. uh, that that is my most important relationship. Uh, and I have access to God. And then, like, this random person that I meet who's not connected with the church does not have an overt relationship with God. That then sets up, even unconsciously in my brain, a power dynamic.
3: Mm -hmm. Where
1: I think God is the most important thing, and I have that, and this person doesn't. Mm -hmm. Well, I will now graciously bestow this gift on them, right? Right. Um, And millennials, man, they can sniff that out a mile away. (laughs) When someone thinks that they are more important or have something yeah. better than them, and yeah. you know, like, and we reinforce that in the church too, right? Like one of the degrees that I have is a Master's of Divinity. How stupid is that? <laughs> yeah? that, that I could master the divine. I mean, how much hubris is in that title alone? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so, if instead I approach a relationship with somebody, and and view that like, okay, well, the divine spark is already in them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then it's not about what, what of this great thing that's so important to me can I give to them? Mm-hmm. It's, it's what is God doing in their life that I can learn from? Mm-hmm. It evens the playing field. yeah, um, And it reduces that power dynamic. So like last night we had this, this woman who showed up and and we were talking afterwards. I said, "Yeah, I'm definitely an, an, an agnostic and maybe an atheist." But like, you know, you talked an awful lot about God tonight in ways that like I'm just not interested in. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we talked a while, and she's really brilliant, and 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 I enjoyed um, the conversation because I really liked your perspective on things. And and so eventually, I said, "Look, I would love to to meet from time to time um, because I like the way you think, and I think that I've got some things to learn from you." Mm-hmm. Um. And then her response right away was, you know, I could probably learn some things from you too.
3: Hmm.
1: Now, I have no idea what that will mean for her relationship with God. I don't know if she'll come to a place of faith or never come to a place of faith. Um, But that's not my responsibility. That's God's responsibility.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I agree.
1: Um, My job is to share honestly with her what I think and then Mm -hmm. honestly listen to what I can pick up from her. Um, and I think because I was valuing her perspective and valuing her input, um, you know, she's willing to meet, she's willing to talk, she's willing to build a relationship. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen. If I think that like, I have this thing that she needs and she doesn't have it at all.
0: Right. So, uh, this is is a delightful conversation. If, uh, Mike, if somebody wants to, uh, know more about union wants to, um, Go to worship there or just to have some caffeine and yeah. ch- check it out. H- how can people get in touch uh, or go there?
1: Sure. So, um, I mean, if they're in Dallas, all they need to do is search for Union Coffee on, um, <laughs> on Google or Yelp or mm-hmm. uh, anything else, and you'll find us. Um, so, it's an easy way to get to us. Mm-hmm. Our website is uniondallas.net. Um, and so people can find us there. They mm-hmm. can donate to us there if they want,
3: yes.
1: uh, and, uh, they can, um, get lots of information there. Um, I think one of the other things that they can do as well, um, is, uh, certainly check out, uh, flipping church. If people want more information about that, it's mm-hmm. on Amazon, uh, pretty easy to find, just stick flipping church in there. And there's both a Kindle and, um, book form, and there's a couple of good chapters about union in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, to get involved in the union, just check the website or stop by. We're pretty friendly.
2: I, uh, I will say that I've got a copy of Flipping Church. Uh, it's a great book and a great resource. If you're wanting to, uh, if you're looking to try to figure out how are we challenging, um, how are we able to engage the society as it's changing, as it's uh, presenting us with new challenges and new issues, uh, how are we able to overcome those and address those as a church? Flipping Church is a great resource.
0: We're going to put it there in our resource tab at doorsopen.org You can check it out there. It's going to be uh, very soon in cool. our resources. Thanks. Yes, of course. So, any final remarks that Mike, do you want to uh, tell us or, or say to wrap it up? Uh, thank you again for your time and uh, your last remarks.
1: I'm just thrilled that y'all are putting together a podcast like this where you're uh, pulling in folks from across the church to help connect us so we can learn from each other. And, um, you know, I by no means think that we have all the answers or many of the answers at Union. Um, You know, we're just struggling along to try to figure out the best way that we can do what we do and um, always eager to learn from others uh, so that we can be better and uh, we can all grow in that process.
0: Well, thank you again, Mike, for your time and uh, blessings in your ministry. And uh, may the Holy Spirit continue to disrupt uh, all your talking and uh, all your thinking to the, take you to other places that you didn't think that they were supposed to be there. So, Well, okay. this is um, this was, or the, the door is open. I am one of your hosts, Carlos Ramirez. I'm Travis Sutton. And?
1: I'm Mike Barkman. Oh.
0: awesome all right uh see you soon see you next time adios to access all the information used in the creation of this podcast please visit thedoorisopen.org